So this uh, evening, I'd like to follow a little from what I talked about last time. I was talking about awakening, about practice, and today I'd like to look a little at what is called the debate, the kind of uh, question looking at sudden and gradual. This is kind of one of the big debates in the Zen tradition, but I think it's also a debate that also occurs in other meditative traditions, spiritual traditions. And I think this is a very much a, a Zen theme which is a little relevant to practice in terms of, again, how we feel about it, what we consider it's about. So, in the spiritual path, there is this idea that there is these two approaches. And one is an approach which is called often sudden insight, and then there is the other approach which is gradual cultivation. And they always say one is better than the other, or vice versa, as usual. And gradual, what is the, the, the gradual cultivation is about the fact that when we meditate, I mean, when we practice, we're actually, in a way, cultivating something. And we're cultivating in two ways. One way is to work with the negative tendencies, and the other is to develop the positive quality. And so it is kind of like a cultivation of dissolving the negative, developing the positive. And so, you know, over time, then there is development, and it's a very step-by-step -step approach, a gradual approach. But then there is other school of thought which says that, no, 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 the practice is sudden. It is a direct breakthrough to the Buddha nature, to emptiness, through the veil of attachment. It's kind of, it's like a breakthrough. And in Zen, this is very much a big debate about sudden and gradual. And they have this whole kind of, you know, is a practice sudden, gradual, gradual, sudden, 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 gradual, gradual, but I'll only consider two today, you know. And the main two things that they have the debate about is, is a practice about sudden awakening, sudden practice, or is it about sudden awakening and gradual practice? And so the sudden, sudden are called the subitist. And the sudden gradual are called the gradualist. And this is bad. This is a pejorative term. If you're a gradualist, you're really kind of, you know, barely kind of worthy of, of kind of, you know, dealing with. And the thing is that you could think, well, I mean, this started in the 8th century in China, and you would think, well, you know, it's kind of like folk story. But actually, to this day, the debate is going on. It's still raging. And I know my temple, we were gradualists. <laughs> so looked down upon by the Semitists who were in the other temple. They, I mean, generally, there are very few gradualists because it's kind of, you know, not something you're kind of proud of. <laughs> and you generally have more Semitists kind of more the thing, you know, the thing to do. So we kind of generally looked down a little. In Korea, I mean, it was obvious. You know, our, you know, the other master accusing our master to be gradualist or whatever. 
And I, I mean, what happened to me, what I saw, yes, this is like real, real, it's not just a folk story. I was I had a, a Chinese Zen master stay overnight at my place, and after breakfast, we kind of engaged in a little conversation, and I thought, you know, it's kind of not often I can talk about certain kind of Zen matter to do with history and theology and so forth, and so I thought about talking about Sumi, which was one of the founder of the idea of Southern Gradual, and I started to talk, you know, yes, yeah, Sumi, Southern Gradual, he looked at me, what? Then it is sudden, sudden. <laughs> so I changed the subject. <laughs> so this is still, I mean, like, you know, even today, it's still very present. So how did this come about, this debate, and what has it got to do with us, you know, in a way? The thing is that long ago in China, in the 8th century, you had the fifth patriarch, and he was getting a little old, and he thought, well, I need to kind of pass on the kind of the transmission, pass on the Dharma to somebody younger. And so he said that to everybody, you know, that uh, if you want, uh, I would like to find a successor, and so I want uh, any of you in the monastery to write a poem, because that's what you do in the Zen tradition. If you have an understanding, a breakthrough, an awakening, you write a poem which shows that understanding. You show it to the master, and then he says, yes, this is the right one, or no, this is not it. So he said, you know, somebody write a poem to show their understanding, and if their understanding is good enough, then they will become the sixth patriarch. And so everybody thought, well, the abbot, you know, he's the one who must have the most understanding, he's the one to write the poem. So the poor abbot thinks, I know, I have to write a poem, you know, <laughs> to show my understanding, to show my mettle. So, you know, anonymously in the middle of the night he wrote his poem, just in case if the master thought it was good enough, then he would kind of say, oh yes, it's me. So that's what, I mean, you can start to see uh, from which angle this story is uh, written. But this is another thing. So this is a poem. And the poem is, the body is the awakening tree. The mind is like a clear mirror. At all times, you must strive to polish it and must not let dust collect. And so the master passed by and said, very good poem, very good poem. And what is he saying in the poem? The, his name is Shenshu, the abbot. He says the body is like the awakening tree. And so basically he's saying within this body, there is a potential, there is a seed for awakening. And the mind is like a clear mirror. And he's saying our mind has a possibility to be spacious, reflective, non-grasping, just like a mirror. At all times, we must strive to polish it so that dust will not collect on it. And so in a way, there is very much this idea of the practice as a cultivation of the three training of ethics, meditation, and wisdom. And that the more we practice, the more we polish ourselves in a way, the less the defilement will stick to us. And so this is very much a gradual approach. And what actually I would say is a practical approach, because it's very much connected to the body, it's very much connected to what we can observe, what we can experience. 
ourselves. However, there was another kind of uh, young novice in the temple and he heard about this poem and he thought, I have a much better one. So he asked somebody again in the dead of the night to write it next to the other one and that's what he says. Awakening originally as no tree, the mirror also as no stand. Buddha nature is always clean and pure. Where can dust alight? <laughs> so here everything goes. And of course the master came by and said, this is the best poem, and he became the sixth patriarch. But I think what he is trying to show here, to kind of say here, is that awakening is not containable, it's not fixable, it's not specific. In a way it's kind of like, if you experience a state of non-grasping, you can't really describe it, because it's just something you can experience, which is a little un... You can't, you know, define it. You can't pinpoint it. So that's why he says, you know, there is no tree. There is just awakening with no reference point. A little like with the question, what is this? Then he also says the mirror has no stand. Meaning the mirror cannot even be contained. It doesn't stand anywhere. It is just there. This mirror, it is expansive. It is wide open. It has no border, it has no limitation. And again, he refers to the, the Buddha nature, the, the nature is bright and clear all the time. So that, you know, it's back to this idea of it being like the sun behind the cloud, that it's, the, the sun is never changed, it's kind of the sun is always bright, always fiery, always illuminating, even if there is very dark cloud. So the same idea, the nature is always clear always bright. So then, though it's so bright, then nothing, so pure, nothing can stick to it. Nothing can, you know, it's, it's kind of like a Teflon pan, awakening as a Teflon pan, you know. Nothing, it's not sticky, so nothing can stick to it. I think this is a little idea. So, and I think this poem represents, in a way, the mystical, a mystical vision of the practice. And I think it's very important to like, see that the two poems represent two aspects of the practice. One, the practical aspect, I would say, and one, the mystical aspect. I think one has to see that in a way, they're not talking about something that is opposed. They may be talking about different aspects of the practice, what I would call complementary aspects of the practice. And I would say in a way, in our practice, these two dimensions are needed. That in a way, when we sit in meditation, it seems to me that we are at the crossroad of these two dimensions, of the depth of the practice and of the width of the practice. And I would say when we are, especially on a meditation retreat, actually all the conditions are so that we cultivate the depth. But then when we go out in our daily life, I think then what we do is cultivate the width because of the different conditions. So in a way, according to the condition, we might be more working on one aspect or the other, or sometimes we might really be at the crossroad of the two, that at any given moment in our practice, there can be this very practical aspect, but also there can be this mystical, visionary aspect. 
And so one aspect is developmental. And I think it's very important to have that aspect of development that we try over time, we try again and again, like you, have, you are doing during this retreat. And through that, there is this kind of progress, there is this kind of, you know, change, there is this transformation. Then there is the other aspect, which is sudden, which is actually not engineered, which just happens. It's like, you know, suddenly, you know, you are feeling like this really kind of, you know, God, this is not working, there is my meditation, is really, I have lots of food or whatever, and then suddenly, poof, it really works. You really, in a way, it's quite sudden when actually it works, and you feel, in a way, that something has opened. In a way, there is a kind of a dissolving of something that we're kind of, in a way, blocking us. And so I think, we, and that is not engineered. It's not because often it's interesting people have this experience in meditation or in, that suddenly it is spacious, it is fine, you feel comfortable, you're bright and clear, and it lasts, who knows, two seconds or ten minutes or possibly more. And then the next day, you try to find, how did I do it? I think, you know, was I sitting this way? Was I keeping my eyes that way? Was I doing that? And so in a way, we try to then re-engineer it. When actually it is not engineered, it just happens. I think it is a certain aspect of the practice. And in a way, what we have to be careful is to in a way, can only keep, only look at one aspect, only thinking meditation is either gradual or either sudden. Because if we only look at the development aspect of the practice, only the gradual aspect, it's like actually we start to have this very rigid developmental model, with very kind of fixed step and very kind of deterministic. And then we start to have fixed expectation and then it kind of narrow in a way our vision. And I had a friend that she, she went on a on a retreat in uh, Thailand somewhere and there is a very there, it was a very gradual approach, a very kind of uh, uh, this kind of idea of, you know, first day she was supposed to do this and by the next morning she was supposed to experience that. Then she was supposed to do that, next morning experience that. And so every morning somebody would knock at the door and say, So, what did you experience? And the problem with this approach is that it might work for some people, but if it doesn't work for you, and they knock at your door and nothing whatsoever happens, then what do you do? You feel kind of, well, you know, you're not good enough. Or, but I think that's where the... Of course we are developmental, but we have to be careful if we only look at that and then it becomes a little deterministic and then it might not fit everyone. It might be a little problematic that way. So I think to be careful to just, in a way, be fixing on that developmental model. But there is, in a way, another difficulty if we just go for the only certain model. I mean, the problem there is that then you need to experience something. And then you have this whole criteria of, you know, what is really the true breakthrough, true opening, and, you know, is it like this, like that, and calibration of that, and so And also that you must have it. I mean, this is one of the difficulties, I think, with the Zen practice. Uh, when, you know, you have some books, it's 
full of this awakening experience, you know, and, they, and then after about a week of sitting really very intensely, so you read the book and you think, well, I never got one of those, you know, I must be in the wrong tradition or I must do something wrong. I think one has to be very careful. This, this thing, this uh, kind of awakening experience is what it called breakthrough. I think you can add, if you are in a very, very intense situation, like, you know, you, you sleep four hours a day, you get up at two, you go to bed at, at ten, and then you sit all day long and you don't do anything else. Yeah, I mean, you know, you're, in a way you're stuck with it. You have to have something happen, otherwise it's so uncomfortable. <laughs> you know, it's somebody or else, you know. And so, I think, again, one has to be careful there, that in a way then it's kind of like the, this amazing thing one must have. And then one is never sure, I mean, have I had it or not? And, you know, who is going to tell me that I have had it? And there's all these checking things. And I would also say this kind of mystical aspect, if we just focused on the mystical aspect, I think actually mystical experience might not be necessarily functional. You see, I mean, when you experience them, they're amazing. I totally agree. You feel totally different. I mean, it can be quite a special state to be in. But imagine if you were like that all the time. I mean, I don't think it's very functional, because at that moment, generally, there is no grasping, there is no kind of discrimination, there is lots of spaciousness. It might not, you know, if you have a kind of a a nine-to-five job, I don't, I'm not sure about you know, how it would work. I mean, as a monastic, I think it's fine, you know, to, have a, to live in a mystical state, but as an everyday person, that I am not totally sure about that one. Another difficulty with the sudden, the only sudden approach, is for some weird reason. After people sometimes have sudden experience, the first thing that seems to go is ethics. I mean, they have this awakening experience, and then after that, they transcended everything, transcended all conditions, and then they can do whatever they want. <laughs> I find that very interesting, kind of, kind of, uh, I don't know, to me it's a bit of a non-sequitur, but it's never one-dimensional. So, I mean, once we were with uh, His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, for a little conference, and we are talking about this kind of, you know, ethics and transcendence and things like that. Crazy wisdom. And he said, crazy wisdom? <laughs> he said, where does this come from? I mean, he never heard of it. He thought, you could not have the two together. I mean, you kind of, we, I mean we, we kind of gave up because, yeah, did not. And he was saying, you know, if you really, you know, have this whatever amazing awakening or enlightenment, then if there is truly no discrimination, you should not make any difference between alcohol and urine. So you should as easily drink urine as alcohol. But why people choose alcohol? That is a little puzzling for him, but this is another story. And so it, it seems to me that <coughs> In a way, I must say I have some preference here, of course, because uh, in our, in our uh, temple, in our monastery, Songwangsa, was founded by Master Bojo, of the, a master, uh, Korean master of the 12th century. 
And what is interesting about him, and that's also we have another black mark against us, is because he was self-enlightened. That generally in Korea you, you're supposed to kind of have awakening and then he goes and checked with uh, the master, then you study with the master. But Master Bojo, after being quite kind of a great uh, erudite and great scholar and quite uh, high in the big capital, decided he really wanted to practice. He did not want to live, you know, with all this kind of uh, things he thought were not essential to the practice of politics and various things. And so he decided to go to the Hermitage and to really practice. And for, so for very many years, he just was in a Hermitage by himself and he practiced. Uh, a lot, the sitting and walking. And the one thing he would have with him, so he did not have a teacher. And the only thing he had with him was books. And he enlightened, and Stephen is very keen on him too, he enlightened reading books, <laughs> reading passages. So, you know, he would do his meditation and maybe, I presume once a day, he would read a few passages in one of these three books that he had specially. And in, in, and in each of these three books, kind of uh, over time, he read a passage, and at this passage, reading the passage then, he was awakened. And in that way, he had these three breakthroughs, three awakening. And in that way, he was not transmitted by anybody. So we are kind of a little, that's why we're little black marks. He did not go to China to get the real transmission. And so he was the founder of our temple, and he was a great advocate of this idea of sudden insight followed by gradual practice. And to me, this really makes sense and in a way could explain uh, the question yesterday, the other day there was a question about, you know, how come Master Cousin had three awakening? And actually because, in a way, it fitted or it can be explained by this model, that you have a sudden insight which is followed by gradual practice. Then you have another insight, followed again by gradual practice, another insight, another gradual practice. And so in a way, the path is uh, combined these two very important elements, the sudden and the gradual. And because in a way, uh, Master Bojo said the, the sudden insight is very important, to have a, a sudden insight, to have a sudden opening to what they say in Korea, which is Song, is to see the nature to see something that you've never seen before. And actually for two reasons. To have this certain insight to really see something. So it is not just something you've read in books, but it's something you've experienced yourself. That all that is talked about, you have a little, however small taste, even if it's millisecond, even if it's just this small taste of being in a state of non-grasping being in a state where you're not solid and fixed and separate, being in a state where there is this opening, and also being in a state where you see something, which often they say is right in front of your nose, but you've never seen before. And you see it, ah, I have not seen that, but now you know it. <coughs> and so that you, in a way, have your own experience, and also this leads to great faith. The great faith Stephen was talking about, last night, because you know for yourself. It's not just from being told about it or reading about it. And at the same time, this needs to be followed by gradual practice, because there is still very strong habit. There is still very strong grasping. 
And I find that often people say, well, I had this amazing experience in the Ganges 10 years ago, and I am not so different now, 10 years later with my neighbor. And this is a thing, this is a thing that in a way, the experience when it happened, you feel, wow, this is amazing. I am different in this moment. I am not grasping anymore. But what is interesting is that the habits of grasping are so strong that the experience dissipates in my last second, in my last week, and then slowly, slowly it seems to dissipate, and then you think, hey, you know, I'm again irritated, I am upset, or depressed, whatever it is, that we can, you see, the, the habits can in a way reform me. I mean, they might be a bit weaker because of the experience. And so that's what, to me, it seems to make much sense, this sudden and gradual idea. Because in a way, once we have that sudden experience, we need to be able to apply it. We need to, in a way, to make it organic. It needs to become part, not just an experience in a certain, condi- certain conditions, like on retreat, but that when we go home, it can have a certain impact in the way we are relating to ourselves and to others. So, I mean, now I'd like to talk about, just to give a little kind of uh, idea about this. I mean, this is not any great fake awakening experience, but what I would call, in a way, kind of some two uh, insights I had, and first the first one, but I kind of suddenly, it's really in a way where I would say my great faith started when I kind of, you know, I was doing the practice. I mean, I became a nun because I thought, why not, you know? <laughs> I have tried this, I have tried that, I'm 22, I have nothing special to do, why don't become a nun for two years, you know? And then I learned meditation, and why not? So, so I became a nun, and then I started to do the practice, which I found really difficult. You know, I would sit, and so painful and my mind was all over the place and I could not stand it and anyway I kind of buckled down to it after a while because there was nothing else to do but you know at least three months of meditation and what happened was the second the second time I did a, a three months of meditation and I was living in this small room with five with four other women so we were, I mean we could just sit at night and I was by the door. I mean, we could not have had more people. We could all sleep on the floor in our, our little spots. And so we had been sitting for a month, I think, you know, 10 hours a day and all that. What is this? What is this? And I was sitting there. Suddenly, I realized, it was so obvious. I'd never seen it before, but I realized that I was totally self-centered. 95%. But, before that, I wanted to save the world from the age 11, and that had been, you know, till age 18. Till I started to do meditation, I wanted to save the world, and I was an anarchist, and all that, political, and da da da. And so I was, you know, always had the idea that I was compassionate, that I really cared for everybody, that I would give my share to anybody who asked for it. And suddenly as I was sitting there, I suddenly saw, hey, everything you do 
is for your own sake. Everything is because of you and not because of anybody else. I was looking, really? Is that so? And I looked, looked, yeah, everything I did was for my own sake, you know. And then in the next moment, because we were, there was, you know, we were sitting and there was this four other lady, and I realized, because we'd been living together for five of us for a month, and I looked at everybody and I thought, hey, they're doing exactly the same. They two are totally self-centered. And I thought it was so funny, you know, that here we are trying to meditate, trying to be wise and compassionate, aspiring to awakening, and we are totally all self-centered. It was like, you know, a little butterfly trying to keep the next star for ourselves all the time. And so when our self-interest coincided, we are fairly peaceful. But when they did not coincide, then it's a little difficult. And to me, this in a way was a revelation. I mean, the experience was, wow, I mean, it's so obvious. And I think when in meditation we have an insight, is suddenly we see something that was in front of our nose we have never seen before. And actually, I never thought about it. I never realized it. I really thought I was amazingly compassionate all the time. And it truly was not so. And I kind of, you know, looking back, so yes, this is true. I am not so. It's an idea. And then, because then I now I had the true, true state of affairs, then I could do something about it. And then that's where the gradual practice comes in. That then now I had to kind of think, yeah, maybe we could, you know, move down a bit from 95. Maybe I could aim towards 50%. You know, I think 0% is not possible. But 50%, I think we can aim for that. And in a way, this is my practice. From that moment on, in a way, this is part of, in a way, the practice is kind of trying to be in a state which is less self-centered and more open-centered. It being trying to, in a way, that the ego, the me, 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 is not always in the forefront. But that time to time, we can, you know, create a kind of a back seat and really be more open and aware and for other people. And then I can see, sometimes, you know, I can, I can feel, actually, it's very interesting to feel when you are in the 50%. I mean, you feel, you feel very different. There is much less kind of, um, kind of grasping, and it's kind of much more spacious. And then you f- suddenly you realize you're really irritated and you are in the 80% though, and you're kind of moving, you know, sometimes you can go back to the 95 and it's interesting to then, with the help of the meditation and the practice, to notice that, to see how we can be in this less grasping mode. And then when we are more in the grasping mode, which is generally more painful. Then there is another experience, which I think, again, is to look at this kind of sudden, what is the suddenness of it and what is the gradualness about it. And this is sometimes, I mean, I don't experience this so much anymore, but because I have less trouble than I used to have. Because for many years I lived in community. And if you want to train in the practice, if you want to really know if your practice is really the real thing, live in community, live in egalitarian community, and then you really know if you have advanced on the path or not. 
this I think is a, the, the very good way to know. And so this was during the time I was living in community and then I would come and uh, kind of teach retreat here. And what was interesting for me was at the beginning generally something would kind of you know, happen between somebody and myself and you always kind of, you know, you say, yeah, 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 you know, breath, what is this, you know, breath. And there would be a point in, in the retreat I would do at that time, there would be a point where suddenly, you know, maybe in the third day, suddenly I would see it. And there was nothing. There was no there was just this open heart. Just this loving heart. And the only way I can describe it is that I had no problem with nobody. Whatsoever. Like in a way, I loved everybody. Everything that was alive was, my heart was open to that life. And so as an experience, it's wonderful because at least for you know a few minutes or longer you you feel fine with the world. You feel at peace, you feel in love with the world. You know, they're all kind of part of it. You part of it, they're part of it too. And I think this is in a way an experience of love, of compassion. But then when you go back to your everyday life and you have this that to do and that person and that and then in a way the experience is not there anymore. But I think you can still, as a gradual practice of that experience, of starting to know you've experienced a state where you're not fixed and not kind of like closed off in that way. And then you can start to look at people in a very different way. And to me this is in a way what the gradual practice is about. It's not just us hoping. We go out of uh, the meditation retreat and then we just stay the same. You know, we have this open-heartedness, yeah, spaciousness. It doesn't stay because we have so all these conditions. But actually we can. And I think this is what is uh, the, the challenge. How can I bring that experience in the daily life? How can I start to look at people in different ways? And the first time I saw when it started to work was when I started to look at people less in terms of the image and the idea I had of them and more in the relating to them in that moment to that person. Not the person a month ago, not the person ten years ago, but that person in that moment who was a human being who was breathing with me. And for example with my mother, this makes such a difference. Instead of meeting my mother and Although we have a good relationship, you still have always a little funny feeling, you know, with your mother as a woman. I don't know about men, if they are the same or not. But I know there is always this funny feeling. And it really, it was gone. Once I started, just this is a human being. Can I be with that human being in that moment just where she is? And just where I am? And then it makes everything so different. So in a way, that's what I think this sudden a, way, a sudden insight and gradual practice is about. It's about you have the experience and then how can you not in a way, replicate the experience? Because I think this is very difficult, but how can you organize, organize, make organic the experience in your daily life? How can it make a difference? And then, of course, you can have another insight and then you can have another cultivation of that.
So, personally, I mean, but that's my very limited understanding, of course. I know, you know, we, a lot of people talk about these experiences of this, that, and another, and whatnot. But personally, it seems to me that whatever meditative, mystical experience happens to us, that it be in meditation retreat, that it be in nature, that it be, who knows, at work, I think they can happen any time. I think actually it is not something which is like this amazing, you know, a mystical thing coming from somewhere. But it seems to me that what it is, it's an opening. It's in a way, certainly, and I think this is what the practice is about, it's about non-grasping. It's about, in a way, this dissolving of this grasping. To me, that's what the practice is about. And I think when we have a meditative or mystical experience, we we experience non-grasping. How does it feel for a few minutes or longer to not grasp, to not hold? And I think it's important to see that grasping is a very natural human thing to do. This is biological functioning. If I don't take care of myself, nobody is going to take care of me. I mean, everybody is in the same boat, you know. We're all kind of looking out for this human being who wants to survive. So, of course, nobody else, I mean, unless they really love us 150%, you know, generally, we have to do the job. So, of course, that I think is a very natural, trying to survive, trying to live. But I think onto that, over time, over life, we have an exaggeration of that grasping me- mechanism. And I think, in a way, what we're doing in meditation is trying to dissolve the exaggeration, trying to dissolve the exaggeration which come out of this me, of becoming me. And actually, all of us have to become person. We're born and with these kind of little beings. And recently, I had my uh, the wife of my nephew had, you know, twins and these little kind of shrimps. You know, they're big, they're very tiny. And you know, you have these little shrimps, and you know, they have to become me. They have to become themselves. And over time, they're going to become persons. But actually, over time, what kind of things? You know, with this me, you know, we get entangled. I think with the exaggeration of the grasping. And then there is a separation. And then there is a fear. I think out of this grasping, I think that's where there is a lot of anxiety, a lot of fear comes. And so what I like to do now, what I'd like to do now, is just kind of a little kind of tool for us to look at this process of non-grasping and this process of grasping and how the meditation can help us there. Because I think this is really what it is about. Can you pass me my clothes? I want to do a little demonstration. Because I think, in a way, there is a process of grasping. And so, we kind of, we get into contact with something, and then we grasp at it, and through that we generally identify with it, we isolate it, we limit ourselves to it, and we magnify it. And that I like to, to kind of show a little uh, with this object. Let's say this is either gold or diamond, or it is the greatest truth of the universe, and it is mine. I mean, this is where grasping comes in. It is mine. And because it is very precious, it is mine, 
I want to keep it, I want to protect it, I want to hold it. So nobody is going to take it away from me, not even a little bit. This is mine. So, I do this. And if I do this, what happens? Two things happen. First, I get a cramp in the arm. <laughs> and this is why we feel stressed, because we're in tension all the time with our grasping. Because we, the fact that we do this is, that's what happens. That's one thing. Second thing, what happens when, when I do this? I cannot use my hand. I am stuck on the thing I grasp at. And that I think is very important. And then, spiritual practice, I think, has various, there are various theories. One theory is to get rid of the hand. So you cut the hand and there is no grasping. Personally, I think it's a little drastic. <laughs> Another theory is you get rid of the object. But you, I think you still would have, you know, you still could find another object to kind of, you know, then you have to live on top of a mountain with no objects whatsoever. <laughs> this is one solution. But personally, I think the practice is to learn to open the hand. So then there is movement. I can leave it, it can be there, it can go. And in a way, that's what I think we have to look at a little. The the way it works, and to me the, the meditation is actually that, is really a gift of kind of starting to notice the contact. We come into contact, and I think the what is this can help us there, or the awareness practice can help us there, to see there is contact. Generally, as soon as there is contact, there is identification. This is my need, this is my thought, this is my problem, I am hearing this, I am feeling this. So there is I comes in. There is identification after contact. Then there is isolation. As I showed, there is isolation. You stick to something, you isolate it. You isolate a thought, you isolate a feeling, you isolate a problem. Then because you isolate it and you stick to it, you limit yourself to it. And this is why it's what is so painful. To reduce ourselves to a thought, to reduce ourselves to a feeling, to reduce ourselves to a problem. We are never just one thought, never just one feeling, never just one problem. We're always more than that. We're always more than any one of the conditions that constitute us. And then by limiting ourselves to one thing, then we exaggerate the thing. And that's why then we think, this thought is bigger than me. This feeling is bigger than me. And we feel overwhelmed. It's very interesting to see how it works. And I think, in a way, the meditation can help us at all these different stages to see how there is contact. Instead of having this kind of contact and this kind of, you know, grasping and reactivity, can, in a way, can I engage? Again, this is the idea of the mirror. Can I be fully with what I am encountering, but without grasping at it? And I think this is, in a way, the challenge of life. How can I be with something fully and then respond to whatever skillfully, without being stuck, without magnifying, without limiting? And in a way, that's why the meditation is bad. And I would say 
that was this sudden gradual is about, that we can experience that spaciousness, but that actually after that we have to cultivate in order to really bring the spaciousness as much as we can in all kinds of ways. So in a way what I would say in the retreat now, you know, we're sitting, you know, asking, what is this, what is this? And actually we are working on this great grasping mechanism. We are trying to dissipate it. We are trying to, in a way, not get so locked in our thought, feeling, sensation, or whatever it is. But trying to be with them, but in a more open, spacious manner. So, my time is up. Are there any questions or comments? question, then we'll finish here, and then they will be walking, and then we'll have the last sitting. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.